Greetings from Quail Lakes Baptist Church in Stockton, California. Thank you for your interest in our downloadable messages. Our more recent teachings, such as Pastor Mark's current sermon series, are always available on iTunes. However, for a more comprehensive offering of Quail's Bible-based teachings from Pastor Mark and others, we offer an extensive archive of downloadable sermon MP3s on our website, as well as information on our fellowship and our ministries. Please visit us online at www.qlbc.org. These messages are also available on CD or cassette. For more information, please call our church office at 209-951-7380. We trust you will be blessed and edified by what you are about to hear. Thank you for listening. Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. That's where we are in our journey through 2 Corinthians. Actually, we're going to span chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8 today in our message. Here's the key concept this morning. We are called to live lives marked by generosity, marked by generosity. As you find 2 Corinthians chapter 7, I'm going to link two words together today. One word from chapter 7 and one from chapter 8. The words are sorrow and stewardship. Sorrow and stewardship. Let's talk about sorrow first. No one likes to be sad. One of the things we talk about a lot here at Quail is the joy that we find in the Lord. Our weekly radio broadcast that was mentioned in the video is designed for joy. And I picked that title myself because I believe in that. I believe that in Jesus there is true and lasting joy. However, that shouldn't cause us to think that our highest goal from co- for coming together is that when we leave this place week after week, we can simply say, a good time was had by all. The church is not a comedy club. It's not about being entertained with religious ideas. And the Christian life is not a continual life of bliss. Not yet. So today we're going to be introduced to something that the Apostle Paul coins, a concept that he shares with us that you really don't hear anywhere else. And it's encapsulated in the phrase, godly sorrow. Godly sorrow. Pick up the reading with me in chapter 7, verse 8, and we'll see what he says. He writes and says, he says, Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow. There is a difference between what you need and what you want. And if you can't tell that difference, you're going to have problems in life. What we need and what we want are often different things. I read a story about a business in which this was getting muddled. and the, the employees of the business came to the office manager and said, we need new file cabinets to, to store our files in. And the business manager was just about ready to order $50,000 worth of file cabinets. But before he did that, he said, let's just put a pause on that for a moment and let's spend a half a day and look in the file cabinets and see if there's anything we can get rid of. 
Maybe I don't have to order all those file cabinets. And so they did that for half a day. And what they found was not only did they not need new file cabinets, they had dozens of file cabinets that they were now empty that they could sell at a profit. Because what they wanted wasn't what they needed. They thought they needed it, but they didn't. What we want is not also often what we need. What we want is a life that has no problems. What we want is a life of ease, a life where people will always agree with us that we're never going to be challenged, we're never going to be corrected, we're always going to be happy. We want that so much that there is a recent phenomenon that we're noticing on college campuses, a, a thing called the safe spaces. And the safe space is a place where a student can go to shield themselves from viewpoints that are not what they already agree with. There's a growing sentiment in our nation that we have the right to absolute emotional comfort at all times. But that's not what we need. What we need sometimes is godly sorrow because you do not live a perfect life and we do not live in a perfect world. And God, Paul addresses the church in Corinth because what has happened in the church in Corinth is that it has been somewhat hijacked by false teachers. And the false teachers have brought in some bad ideas, and the bad ideas have spurned, spurred bad practices. And they've allowed things to be happening in the church that ought not to be there. And Paul has sent a letter with Titus, okay? And Titus went down to Corinth with this letter, and it's called the severe letter. We don't have it in our Bible. God did not see fit to have us see that letter, but it must have been a rebuking letter. And Paul wrote it with tears in his eyes, I'm sure. It is not easy to rebuke, and it is not easy to be rebuked, right? I mean, how do you respond when somebody begins to tell you off? The first thing you're like, who is this guy to start saying this stuff, this stuff to me? You know, we back away, we push away. Our reaction is to get a little defensive, a little bit put off. Rebuke. It's not easy to receive it, and it's not easy to give it, but look at what the Bible says about rebuke. Proverbs 9 says this, Rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. Instruct a wise man, and he will be wiser still. Titus 2.15, Encourage and rebuke with all authority. In other words, there is a balance to this Christian life we're seeking to live. There are times we need to be encouraged, but there are times we need to be rebuked. Paul not only teaches that as he writes to Titus, he models that. And he's challenged them. And I am sure that their reaction at first was typical. Maybe just what we, how we would react at first that, for that harsh, severe letter and what he said in that. At first, maybe they, you know, who's this guy to be telling us this? But somehow it broke through. Paul was worried about their reaction. He's a sensitive person. He says, I did regret it, but I don't anymore. By the time you get to verse 9, he says, now I am happy. Why is he happy? He's happy because the godly sorrow that he caused from his rebuke caused the positive change that he hoped for, caused repentance. You know, sometimes the fact is you have to suffer a little pain to be able to avoid a big pain. Now, if you don't believe that, Think back to the last time you had a procedure in the dentist's office, right? What do they do? Well, we're going to have to do something. And they say, first what we're going to do is we're just going to, they always say, say it in a way that doesn't sound bad. First, we're going to numb you up a bit. That's something like that. Numb me up. What does that mean? That means they're going to take a needle 
a Novocaine and stick it into the soft flesh of your gums and inject the Novocaine, okay? That's what that means. That, I mean, it, my spine shudders just thinking about that, right? That hurts, and I'm trying to be brave, but that hurts, right? But that little bit of pain prevents a lot of pain later on from being felt. And that's exactly the situation with, with godly sorrow. The godly sorrow prevents us with what the pain that sin would have brought if it brings about repentance. And Paul contrasts godly sorrow with worldly sorrow. Look at verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. These are two different things. They come from different sources. Godly sorrow has its source in the truth of the Lord. It is the antidote to the sin which would bring much greater pain later. Godly sorrow is God's idea. He intends that our conscience is sensitive and active but rooted in the Word of God. And outside of that, godly sorrow must come. Worldly sorrow, on the other hand, comes from selfish desires. It comes when I don't get what I want when I want it. It comes when my pride is hurt or injured, my ego in some way. And when I get it, you know, I sulk around for a while and hoping somebody will notice and ask me the question, what's wrong, so I can unload on them on how unfair the universe is to me. That's worldly sorrow. And they come for different purposes. Godly sorrow is always meant to produce repentance. Repentance is different than sorrow. Repentance is built on sorrow. Sorrow is the foundation, but repentance is turning in a new direction, changing my mind, changing my attitude, changing my actions. And repentance through godly sorrow, therefore, is a grand improvement process. I am better because I experience it. Worldly sorrow, on the other hand, usually it just fuels grudges and hurts. We re replay over our mind the way that we've been slighted and soon, instead of repentance, it just brings resentment. And so the result of godly sorrow will be repentance that brings us to a better place, either salvation or a closer walk with the Lord. But worldly sorrow brings death, maybe spiritual death, but certainly the death of opportunity, the death of relationships and all those things. But the Corinthian church, they've experienced godly sorrow and the change that came with it. So look at verse 11. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. Now, we're not exactly sure what the precise matter was, but they have responded to that rebuke beautifully, and they have come through repentance and are now in a new direction. Titus reports all of this to Paul when he gets back. This is what happened. This is how they acted. And Paul has heard the report and spends the rest of chapter 7 just kind of rejoicing in the fact that Titus has told me all about the good results that have come because of your godly sorrow. And so now as Paul enters chapter 8, he can kind of turn the page a little bit and get on to new things. And the thing that he gets on to is giving. Chapter 8, verse 1. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overwhelming joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. 
I want you to know about the grace that God's given. Paul identifies the opportunity to give, this is financial giving now, to give as a grace. Generosity is a gracious act. And in generosity, grace flows, and it flows in two directions. And this is the key to everything Paul's going to say. The grace flows in two directions when you're generous. Your grace flows to meet the need that you're giving to, to help the person that you're giving to, but grace flows to you because generosity grows you in the Lord Jesus Christ. See, in the situation that's going on here, Paul has heard that the church in Jerusalem is suffering. They have been persecuted. They have been put out of their businesses. They are they're physically and financially suffering and, he, and he, as he told that story in northern Greece, that's Macedonia, even though they were poor people, they responded, we want to be the arm of mercy to our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And so they gave. And as they gave, they experienced the grace of God. For the giver, grace grows you closer to the Lord. Now, you may ask, how does that work? Why is that true? Giving feels material. We're talking about, you know, Finance, that's not a spiritual thing. Ah, you'd be surprised. You'd be surprised how much of your spiritual life is caught up in giving and in generosity. It draws you closer to the Lord this way. When you give, you make a declaration of your faith in God. When you give to God's purposes, you're saying, I trust God to take care of me more than I believe I can take care of myself on my own without Him helping. I don't believe I can ultimately provide my own safety and security, but when I give to the Lord, I'm demonstrating I know I'm not alone in the world, and there is one who's watching over me who I honor. Secondly, it's a rejection of the world's definition of success because the definition of success that is all around you on television, in commercials, everything that you see, it's always like this. It's gaining and getting and piling up for yourself. One man said it this way, get all you can, can all you get, and sit on top of the can. That is not God's version of success, okay? God's version of success in any arena of life is simple. It's one word. It's obedience. That's success. And in light of our talking about finance, it's generosity, obedience to the call of generosity, then I'm truly successful. And number three, giving is a statement of what we're for. I want to be a part of what God is doing. I am investing in what God is doing. I I am connected here. I am for this. And so we support it. I tell you, I am continually shocked at Jesus' words in Matthew 6.21. He says this, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, Why I'm shocked by that is because that's not the way I would have said it. I'm shocked by the order. Maybe you're used to that saying, so it doesn't surprise you anymore. It should surprise you. Because here's what I thought Jesus would say in the flow of that paragraph. I thought he would say, uh, that that he would say, where your heart is, that's where your money will follow. As as if he was teaching us, your money will follow your passion. You're going to invest in the things that you care about, that you're passionate about. And I think that's true, but that's not the point that Jesus is making. The point that Jesus is making is your personal allegiance will follow your money. So if you tell me what a person is spending their money on, I will tell you what that person really is connected to. 
and what they care about. So as I invest in the things of God, my heart is going to follow into the things of God. As I invest in the message of the gospel going out, my heart is going to follow that. And I'm going to be more connected to what God is doing in the world. My heart follows my money. Now, when you see it from that perspective, I mean, Jesus knows what he's doing. When you see it from that perspective, it means that giving is a spiritual discipline. That in giving, I grow in, my, in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ myself. I am growing up. And grace is going to flow to me and it's going to flow from me as I live an outwardly focused life. Now, here's the thing. All this must be very important to God. And the reason I say that is because he didn't have to design our ministry that way. God designed the ministry, the work of the gospel in the world, so that God's people in their generosity would support that work and thus experience this two-way grace. And that's important because technically, God doesn't need our money to get things done. God created all that there is without a single donation. He could do whatever He wants to do. But what He wants to do is to create a people who are marked by generosity so that you can experience that particular grace. It's like a father who gives his children allowance. And they get, they get the allowance, and he knows that part of what they're going to do with that allowance is they're going to take part of it and buy his Father's Day gift. It's not about the gift, really, but what it's about is the children learning and maturing as they think through how they can use what the Father has given them to bless Him. And they doing the shopping and anticipating the joy that the Father will have when He receives that gift. And in that process, the child is growing up to think generously, to act outside themselves. And if it takes the Father's money to accomplish that, to grow them in that way, that's exactly what He does. And that's just what God is doing with us, growing us through generosity. And Paul reminds the Corinthians then that all of this is nothing more than God does himself, for he is a generous giver. Go down to verse 9 of chapter 8. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you might through his poverty become rich. Jesus gave himself out of love for us on the cross. That image, Paul is saying, that's where generosity begins right there. He gave himself and he gave himself first. It puts in perspective what we're talking about when we're saying generosity. We're not talking about giving just something we skim off the top and never notice and never see. When Jesus gave, he gave himself, it was sacrifice. Generosity is sacrificial. And it, all, it puts into focus the fact that motives matter when we give. If we're really going to be growing in the grace that God wants to be growing in, we've got to look at our motives. There are bad motives for giving. Even towards good things, you can give for bad motives. One bad motive is to, to be seen, to be noticed, so that we somehow, you know, get our name on a plaque. Wouldn't that be nice, you know? People will think I'm great. That's a bad motive for giving. Another bad motive for giving is thinking somehow, well, if I give God money, he's going to give me money. It's all about money. 
I said, this is an investment that I'm making so, so that I can get ahead financially. And that's a misuse of the idea. One man t- uh, was talking about a, a letter, a fundraising letter he received from a broadcast ministry, and the ministry was trying to raise a million dollars. And they kind of used and abused the phrase, you can't outgive God, right? And that's true. God blesses in, as we give. Absolutely true. But they tied it so closely to financial reward. They, they actually said that when you, when you invest in the ministry, well, God will give you five times what you invest. The phrase was this, we will have all the money we need and you will have five times the increase. That's the sentence that got this man's attention. So he wrote them back. And he said, you know, I, I too believe that you can't outgive God. And I figured out a way that I'm really going to bless your ministry. Why don't you send me a million dollars and then you get five times the increase? Because I can't give you five million dollars. He never heard from that pe- those people again. The problem, of course, is it's not an investment strategy. What it is is honoring our position as stewards of what God has given to us. It is recognizing our proper position before the Lord. See, here at Quail, we're privileged to run that uh, uh, Financial Peace University class with Dave Ramsey. We're right in the middle of it in, in our Wednesday evening programming right now. But in that, one of the, one of the things he talks about is stewardship, and he bases it on this verse from the Psalms. He says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. See, it all starts there. See, giving is not the same as stewardship, just like repentance is not the same as sorrow. Repentance is birthed in sorrow, and giving is birthed in stewardship. It is an attitude. It is an understanding that God is the owner of everything, and I am the asset manager. And the Bible's word for that is steward. I'm the asset manager. And when, it, when I understand it that way, that he's the owner and I'm the manager, what does it say about giving? It says when we give things away to bless others and to uh, uh, further the work of God, we're really not giving anything away that actually belongs to us, right? And it also means that as we give the way that God instructs us, we're only doing what the owner says to do with the money that is his. Godly sorrow and stewardship. How do they go together? Why are they side by side as I'm talking to you today? It is because when you put godly sorrow next to stewardship, you learn an important point about human nature, and that is this. It's easy to paper over our consciences. It's easy to turn away from the grace of giving, to not be generous. And now I'm saying in any way you live, generous with your time, generous with your effort. It's easy to kind of put everything inward and not live an outward life. But we are called to live lives focused outward. And when godly sorrow and stewardship are put together side by side, it reminds us that we're fallen people. We're inclined towards selfishness, but when we encounter godly sorrow, it turns us in the other direction. It shows us that we would be better off having experienced the grace of giving, that we would be better off living out the statement that says, Lord, you are much more important to me than the things you give me are. And that's the essence of following Jesus. The essence of following Jesus is receiving his love and loving him back. 
by way of obedience. Now, maybe it takes godly sorrow to get us there, but still it is a great place to land. So Paul says to us centuries later, excel in the grace of giving. Let's pray together. Lord, forgive us for the times that we really think more about ourselves than the opportunities we have to demonstrate your love and your grace. Help us to remember that as we live outward lives, what we're doing is really showing love, pushing the love of God forward through us to others and demonstrating who you really are to us. So, Lord, help us to live that way. Help us to see things that way. Enable us, Lord, to be the vehicles that you will use to make the change that love brings. Change in us and then change in others. We thank you in advance. In your name we pray. Amen. So this morning, um, Ryan and I are going to sing a song called For the One, and it's talking about, um, it's crying out to God, asking Him to help us show love to the one that God sent His Son for, which is all of us, which is every single person. Pastor Mark had posted on Facebook a couple weeks ago a phrase that said, you'll never look into eyes that are not loved by God. And that really stuck with me in thinking through the fact that every set of eyes, every person is loved by God and on purpose and intentionally. And I don't know who the one is that that you're being called or stretched to love. Um, Maybe it's someone who's unnoticed or someone who um, is in your walk and it's hard. It sucks. And I know that's been the case for me recently. I have someone in my life that's really hard to love, and I feel like God has given this moment for me to pray over myself. God, help me to love with open arms like you do. Help me to love the one that you sent your son for, because that person is just as loved as I am and as the people that are easy to love and as the one that we don't see or we don't notice. So I just pray that that this would be a reflection for you to to process through what is who is God calling you to love how is he calling you to stretch out and show love uh, differently than you are
Would you stand with me for a closing prayer? As always, we'll have prayer counselors next to the organ by the prayer table. They're waiting for you. Maybe there's a concern in your life, a question that you need answered or some issue that you're struggling with. They will wait for you, pray for you. You slip forward. But first, let's all pray together. Lord, there's going to be a lot of times this next week where we have the chance to demonstrate love. So first of all, help us to see those opportunities. Understand them for what they are. And give us the courage to do that. Enable us to represent you well, to live outwardly focused lives in all the ways in which we can do that. And we pray, Lord, that through that, you would get the praise. So dismiss us with your blessing and watch over us. We trust you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thanks for coming.